Father, we uh, praise you and thank you for an opportunity to be together and to sing your praises. And uh, you are worthy of all praise, glory, and honor. And we, we come before you as sinners who have been declared righteous uh, because of Christ. Uh, we are uh, holy uh, because of your son, Jesus. And we can offer ourselves now holy and acceptable sacrifices. And I pray we would do so even as we listen to your word now, that we would allow it to penetrate our hearts, that we would grow in our relationship with you. Father, I just thank you for this passage we're going to look at today, and I just pray that you'd help us understand exactly what you intended, and that uh, we would not only understand, but we would grow in our relationship with you. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I were to ask you, do you believe... Everything we need for the Christian life is found in Christ and his word. I think you'd probably say yes. I believe uh, if I asked 10 believers the same question, it would probably be the same answer. Yet, unfortunately, I find throughout the contemporary church, uh, which obviously contains some true believers and obviously some make-believers, many in a practical sense do not believe that... Christ and his word is sufficient for everything. Many don't believe that. And what do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. It seems though in our pulpits these days, much emphasis in seminaries or whatever it might be has to do with psychology or or man's wisdom uh, rather than God's word. Just listen to a Christian radio show or uh, look at a Christian recovery book or listen to a contemporary sermon. You're going to see uh, or hear a Bible verse or two, some truth maybe, some truth in the context of what's uh, being shared there. Yet uh, you're not going to see a complete dependence on the sufficiency of Christ through the word to address everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's very subtle. It's very subtle. And we are tempted ourselves to think that, well, you know, these things are issues that God's word maybe doesn't address or whatever it might be and to then try to figure things out on our own. But we're going to see today that we have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And within that, I pray that we would understand what this really means. So would you turn your Bibles to Second Peter? And we are looking at uh, chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 4. And it's a tremendous portion of Scripture. It's, it's so wonderful. I wish I could spend weeks on it, actually. But it's, I can't. I'm just going to spend today, Lord willing. And the reason why is it all goes together. It all goes together. And we need to see this section here together. Okay, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Now, a reminder of the context of this wonderful book that we've just begun studying uh, Simon Peter is the writer. He is a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, verse 1. He is writing uh, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's writing to believers, as we saw last week, those who have received a genuine saving faith as, as God's word produced conviction by the Spirit of God, and we responded in faith to the gospel and were saved. Now within this, is he writing to anyone specifically? Well, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing you, but which, in which by, I am stirring you up by what, your sincere mind by way of reminder. 
Well, we know in his first letter he wrote to those who were in Asia Minor, those who had been, been born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And yet this letter seems to go beyond that to, as we see in verse 1, to all believers, those who have a same faith. The same faith as the apostles had, a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to see this today, but really the theme of the book is revealed in in the verses we're going to look at today. Grace and peace, verse 2, be multiplied to you in the knowledge of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and God is through the true knowledge of him. Throughout this book, we see the focus on a true knowledge and a relationship with Jesus Christ, as we'll see through the Word of God. It's laced through this book, and the book also has warnings to those who would come alongside and divert you or distort or distract the Word of God, uh, strike you from the Word of God, that you would not completely rely in Christ and and walk with Him through His Word. It's a wonderful book, and Peter is... As we see on his, uh, we could say, deathbed, he knows from the Lord that he's going home soon. It is his last words to these believers and to us. And it's interesting in the last words we have from Peter and from the Apostle Paul in Second Timothy, the focus is Christ and his word and then the threats to that our relationship. He says this is a reminder. If you look in chapter 1, verse 12, Therefore I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. The reality is what we're going to see today, if you're a true believer, we know these things. We understand them, but something happens. We become dulled. We, 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 we forget those things. Peter says it's, it's right to remind you. He'll say that later on in chapter 3. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, This now, beloved, is the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And even back in chapter 1, going backwards in verse 15, he says, And I will also be diligent that, that in, at a time after my departure you may be able to call these things to mind. And that's what we want to do. We don't want to just come to the message, listen to it, and go out and not have it affect our lives. We need to call these things to mind. As we're going to see, it is so important. It is so important. So this is a reminder of the truth of God, which uh, is how we walk in a relationship with God and the threats to that truth. Okay, so with that in mind, Peter gives his last words in his second epistle, and they are very important And they are ultimately a reminder to us as true believers how to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ through his word. So with that in mind, you know, if you do a search how to live the Christian life, you're going to find a lot of entries on the Internet or there's a lot of books. How to walk the Christian walk, how to live the Christian life. How are we to do so? How do we live this new life that we have in Christ? We're going to see that everything we need is found in Jesus through his word. Let's read our passage. And I'm going to back up to verse 1 in 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, and here's our passage, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness 
through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Tremendous passage, tremendous reminder, tremendous reality. You know, how are we going to live the Christian life? I think, first of all, we need to understand it is God's desire for us that we increase and in, in the context of his grace and peace, that that is multiplied in our lives. This is God's desire for us. Look at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And as I've already shared, and I shared last week, we have the who this letter is from. It's from Peter, a bondservant, an apostle, who it is to, those with a like faith. And this is the greeting right here in verse 2. This is what the, what the how Peter greets them, inspired by the Spirit. And then we have a connection to that which explains uh, how this is done. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You could literally translate it this way. Grace to you and peace. May it be multiplied. It's in a Greek mood that's not used often. It's an optative mood which speaks of a desire. This is Peter's desire inspired by the Holy Spirit. May it be multiplied. May this happen in your life. It expresses a desire. And this is God's desire, as Peter's inspired by the Holy Spirit. God's desire for us is that his grace and thus peace is multiplied in our lives. This term multiplied speaks of just that, increasing, abounding. So you say, well, what is this grace? What is he talking about, grace multiplied? What does he mean by that? How is, how is grace multiplied in, in our lives? What is he talking about? Is it grace upon us? Is it functioning as grace? What is he talking about? Well, first of all, we need to understand what grace is. What grace is. The term translated grace, charis, in its most basic form, speaks of an unearned gift, unmerited favor, non-matorious favor, favor that is freely bestowed, uh, never in return for merit or work done. So simply unmerited favor. It is basic Greek form, but yet in Scripture we see it is, there's a context in which we see the term grace over and over again. You see, it is none other than an attribute of the living God. Indeed, Peter himself said in his last letter, he spoke of the God of all grace. The God of all grace, chapter 5, verse 10. God is the one who is gracious. Any grace there is at all is from him. Any true grace, any grace between us is him through us, as we'll see, by his spirit. And the only way we can understand grace is in the context of the God of all grace. The God of all grace. You see, indeed, God's unmerited favor towards mankind is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Take, for instance, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh. That's Christ. He took on human flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten One. And what's that glory they beheld? His character, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. What about 2 Corinthians 8, 9? 
Very interesting, in the context of the Apostle Paul exhorting the Corinthians to, to hold their pledge of a gift that they had made for, the, for Jerusalem, but yet they weren't going to do it because they had issues with Paul because false teachers had gotten in on their hearts. Paul encourages them in the context to hold that pledge, to, to give what they had promised, but not from a, from a compulsion, but from a cheerful heart. And within that, he shares the greatest gift that was ever given. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that yet though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. He humbled himself. He left his glory and his throne to take on human flesh, to be abused and, and, and crucified by his, his own creation according to a predetermined plan, to be delivered up by, by the hands of, of ungodly men, but yet according to the plan to die for our sins. He became poor that we might become rich, that we might have salvation. And he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. We don't deserve it. God is a gracious God, he is the God of all grace. Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared, verse 11, bringing salvation to all men. God's grace has been manifested in the person of Jesus Christ coming and dying in our place. Suffering and dying, shedding his blood for us. God's saving grace is summed up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All from him and nothing from us. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 for a second. Ephesians 2, hold your place in Second Peter. When you think of grace, think of Christ. Think of what God did through his Son, the grace of God being manifest. Ephesians chapter 2, verse uh, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even while, when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And then you notice what he says. For by grace, or by grace you have been saved. You were dead in your sins. You had nothing that God needed or wanted in that sense from your own abilities or whatever it might be. We were dead in our sins and God was gracious. And through the gospel, the message they heard and believed, the gospel of salvation, chapter 1, they were saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And raised up with him and seated him in heavenly, us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We're going to be trophies of the grace of God forever and ever and ever in the ages to come. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. God saved us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't merit it. God was gracious, and he saved us by his grace. Grace is what God does for sinful man through his Son, which man cannot earn, does not deserve, or will never merit. Never merit. Now, not only is God's grace manifest in salvation, it's by his grace that we as believers function. It's by his grace that we function. Everything from Christ, nothing, nothing from us. Indeed, Peter would share in his last letter that even the spiritual gifting that we are all stewards, that, that we have all been given, 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11, the spiritual gifting are manifestations of the manifold grace of God. 
I can't do this apart from Him completely. You can't serve Him apart from Him. We can't walk with Him apart from depending on Him and Him graciously doing what we don't deserve on a daily basis. What did the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? He said, For I am the least of the apostles, verse 9, of whom not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Hey, worst thing you could do is mess with the church, by the way. Worst sin there is. And the gospel, right? But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored more than all of them, that's the other apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. We function by God's grace. We function by depending upon him, relying on him and him working through us that which is pleasing as we trust him. What did the uh, Lord Jesus share with the Apostle Paul concerning that thorn that Paul had in the flesh that he, he prayed three times to be removed, that it would be removed? A messenger of Satan that was given to him that he wouldn't boast because of what he had seen, right? And what, did, what was the Lord's answer? Turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. The Christian life is about grace, by the way. It's about relying on Christ completely. It's about Him doing in us what we don't deserve. What we don't deserve. And He's gracious, the God of all grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 8. Concerning this... I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. That's the thorn in the flesh, you said. And he said to me, what? My grace is sufficient for you. And he's going to explain. For power is perfected or completed in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I'd rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak that I am strong. He says, my grace is sufficient. We are saved by the grace of God and we are to function by the grace of God. But if you're honest with yourself, we don't always function by the grace of God, do we? We don't always completely rely on Him, nothing from us, everything from Him. We don't always do that. But it is God's desire, back to our passage, that grace, His grace, by the way, and thus peace, be multiplied to you. Now, by the way, the way it's structured, grace to you and peace, points to the reality that when we experience His grace, the result is peace. Obviously, in initial salvation, we have peace with God because of the grace of God. And also, we have peace when we are relying on Christ They go together. Grace to you and peace. Be multiplied. The Christian life is about functioning in the grace of God. Everything from him, nothing from us. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are adequate to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. The Christian life is about functioning in the grace of God and God's desire for those who have the same faith as the apostles, true believers. God's desire is that his grace and peace be multiplied, that it would increase, 
that we would more and more and more rely on his grace, that we would allow him to function through us by his grace more and more and more and more, that it would be increased, that it would be multiplied. Practically speaking, God wants us to function in the context of a dependent relationship on him, as we're going to see, trusting in his son, Jesus Christ, allowing his word to grow us in the knowledge of his son. Now, what's interesting is uh, Peter had shared this exact same Greek phrase. Now, it's translated differently, but it's the exact same Greek phrase in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. But yet in our passage, there's something added to it. Notice what it says, verse 2 of Second Peter 1. Grace and peace be multiplied to you, and here we have the sphere in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We saw in verse 1 last time that Jesus is our God and Savior. There is one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he is saying that it would be multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And later on, we're going to see it's primarily focused on the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the focus. That's the focus. And again, I believe it's pointing to the reality. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus is God. Knowledge of our God and Jesus. Notice this incredible statement. Our Lord. You see, you were the Lord of your life. You were the Lord of your life before you came to Christ. You did what you wanted. You did you please. You didn't fear anything. You didn't fear God. Maybe you feared circumstances. And Christ convicted us that he is Lord of all, that he died for our sins, and we called upon the name of the Lord, and we were saved. He is our Lord. And this grace and peace is to be multiplied in the context of those who acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. It's to be multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The term Jesus speaks of his humanity. Matthew one twenty one, and you shall name his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Yeshua, the Lord, is salvation. God took on human flesh and saved his people from their sins. So then, God's desire is for his grace and thus peace to be multiplied in the sphere, in the area, in the sphere of the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We so often think of grace by itself, unmerited favor, so I can just do what I want. God's going to help me here. No, it's in the context of a relationship. The sphere in which God's grace increases is in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, our Lord Jesus. You see, when you begin to know him better, we will see him rightly through the word. We will rely more and more upon him in our relationship with him. When our knowledge of Christ increases rightly and from his word, we will begin to expand our understanding of who he is, what he's done for us, and rely and trust in him, and his grace is manifest in our lives. Notice he says multiplied in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus. The term knowledge here comes from a Greek word, epinosis. It's an intensified cognate of the term gnosis. It speaks of a fuller or true knowledge. Now, we know there is knowledge that does not include a relationship. We understand I can have knowledge. Um, but here, this knowledge is knowledge that is integral in a relationship. We understand that, right? Let me illustrate. I can say I know our president, right? I know him. I have knowledge concerning him. But we do not have a relationship. 
I have knowledge, but there is no relationship. Now, the knowledge we see here is, is, is a knowledge in terms of a relationship. I know my wife. I know her. We have a relationship. And how do we grow in this relationship? It is through true knowledge of one another. And the only way we gain is we will see true knowledge of Christ. It is through the Word of God. You see, we were separated from God because of sin. But when we were saved through faith in Jesus Christ, we entered into a real relationship where we are communicating together. He communicates through his word to us. We communicate in the context of prayer. We have a relationship with the living God. We know Jesus because he has opened up a relationship to the forgiveness of sins. Now, the reality is there are some who say, I know Jesus and I, I serve him. I can't do this. I do miracles, cast out demons, whatever it might be. But if you are still in your sin, you don't know him. You may know of him, but you do not know him. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. You can know about him. You can know truth about him. But if you have not been cleansed of your sins, there is no relational knowledge there's no relationship jesus says in matthew 7 21 not everyone who says to me lord lord one of the kingdom hey they call him lord right one of the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven someone who's been saved as we see in context who is able to hear and thus do god's will many will say to me on that day this is judgment day by the way lord lord did we not prophesy in your name hey we know you we did it in your name and did we not cast out demons in your name we know you we did it in your name we spent our lives religiously doing stuff for you and did we not uh, and in your name perform many miracles and cast out demons and perform many miracles in your name then i jesus says will declare to them i never knew you we don't know one another there is no relationship Depart from me, you who continually do lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. If you are in your sins still, you don't know Jesus. But when we are forgiven of our sins, we come into a relationship with him where we know him. But there is an increasing knowledge. And that's the sphere in which we grow in our relationship with Christ. Jesus knows us, we know him, but it is his desire for us to grow in the grace and thus peace in the sphere of our knowledge of Jesus. It's all about Christ and a real relationship. If you're a Christian, there should be a real relationship between you and the Lord Jesus. It's not just simply Bible verses and songs and coming to church and and quoting something, whatever it might be. It is a real dependent relationship on jesus christ as we were saved so walk that way it's by faith right so we're going to see so peter and thus god desires for us true believers to increase in the grace and thus peace in the sphere of the knowledge of the lord jesus by the way the knowledge of christ is crucial in understanding his grace and functioning in it we abide in him we trust in him we walk with him and his grace is sufficient in our weakness and god wants us to grow in that trust that reliance that relationship with christ 
Now, I would venture to say that everyone who names the name of Christ would probably say, I want to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. I want to grow. I hear you. I got it. I want to grow in that grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we grow? How do we grow? Look at our passage back in Second Peter chapter 3. Chapter 3. We're not there yet. Chapter 1. <laughs> We're going to see that God has already gifted us with everything we need for life in God is through a real relationship with Christ. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Tremendous statement. Tremendous statement if we are willing to listen. It is life-changing. It is Christian life-changing. If you're willing to listen. If you're willing to listen. This statement points to the reality that God has already given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You know, once we realize what this is saying, it'll change your Christian life if you are willing to believe it and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Now, it's important to realize that verses 2, 3, and 4 do not stand on their own. 2 is the basis, the desire. 3 expands upon that. It, it's not, it can't be spoken by itself. You could almost say it's one big long sentence going from 2 to 4. You could almost say that. And so as you look at that, you see he's expanding upon this desire of God to, for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. He says, seeing that, or you could translate that term as, as, seeing that is fine also. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has granted something already. Or just as. As his divine power. Or seeing that. Recognizing something has already happened. It has already happened. Notice this word. Has granted us. His divine power has granted us everything in regard to pertaining to life and godliness. This term has granted is an interesting term. It, it speaks of the, a done deal, but that done deal still affects you now. It affects you now. And this also, this word has granted is, is, a, is not your usual word for give in Greek. It is, a, it is a more rich, a more full word that really emphasizes something given. Not the, not the gift, but emphasizes the generosity of the one giving the gift. It's a free gift. It's one coming from a, that with generous character. He's granted, overwhelmingly given. Very important. Think about it. If someone gives you everything you need, that's pretty gracious, isn't it? Think about any situation. If you have everything you need, that's pretty gracious. He says he has granted it, and it is given through and by a powerful God, seeing that his divine power, it's by his power, has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Notice the term everything. You know what that means in Greek? Everything. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. And what's the sphere? Everything has been given. Again, life and godliness. Everything we need for this life, everything we need for life, everything we need for the Christian life, 
everything we need for this life in Christ. Remember Colossians 3, Christ who is our life. Everything we need for our relationship with Christ in this life has been given to us. Has been given to us. Everything. Everything. And then he says, also everything for godliness has been given. The term godliness, you, sabia, you meaning well, sabio my, meaning reverence exhibited in your actions. Speaking well reverence, it talked of a, a reverent attitude of worship for God which manifests in godly behavior. You see, godliness that comes from yourself is not godliness at all. That's hypocrisy. But true godliness comes from a reverence and a right relationship with the living God. It is his character manifest in us. It's interesting, uh, this pleasing activity that speaks of godliness because of who God is functioning through us. In chapter 3, Peter parallels this term godliness with holiness. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, speaking of God's ultimate uh, destruction of this first heavens and first earth, he says here, what sort of people ought you to be in what? Holy conduct and godliness. How should you behave? How should you behave if God would destroy this? He's patient. He's not only for you to perish, but it ultimately will come, Right? Everything we need for the Christian life to function rightly in our relationship with God has been granted already. Already. You've got to grasp this. It's already been granted. All of heaven's resources, in the context, as we will see, of a relationship with Christ through the Word, are at the disposal for the believer for life and godliness. Brothers and sisters, we scrounge around like beggars, yet God has already given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Do you believe that? We need to be reminded. When you're struggling with sin, temptation, thoughts that are contradictory, sinful thoughts that bring death, not life, thoughts that are not godly, actions that are not, remember, we have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. But you say, how is it that we have everything we need? How is this possible? Notice the means in which we have everything. Notice the means. Again, back to our passage. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to godliness. And don't miss this. Through... The true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Some believe that just by following a list of verses, I'm godly. That's not it. Some believe I can follow a list of verses or do godly things or, and I'm doing the right thing for God. That's not the whole story. He says everything we need for life and godliness is found in through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory. And excellence. Tremendous statement. Tremendous statement. The means in which God's unlimited resources for life and godliness to live rightly in his sight and to be godly within our relationship with Christ, one which we function by grace, the means is through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory 
and excellence. You see, when we grow in the true knowledge of Jesus Christ, as we'll see in a minute through the Word of God, as we grow in that, we grow in His grace. We rely on Him more and more. We trust in Him more and more because we know Him better and better. We realize that Christ is everything and He has given us everything and He will take care of everything He calls us to do. It is all in Christ. It is all Christ. He is sufficient. You didn't think when you got saved that Christ wasn't enough. You believed He was. The same thing for this life and dependence on Him in every circumstance. He is sufficient. He is a sufficient Savior. He's sufficient for everything, for life and godliness. But it's in a relationship. The knowledge, a true relationship with Him. The knowledge of Him. Everything we need is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. When we're trusting and depending on Him, growing in our knowledge of Him through His Word, we have everything we need. Everything we need. The Apostle Paul prays for this, that we would know these truths. Uh, Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, that we would understand. Ephesians 1. Paul speaking to true believers who have listened to the message, the gospel, their salvation, and believed and received the Spirit of God because they truly got saved. He says to them in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which was fixed among you and your love for the saints, that's the evidence, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. We sing, Jesus is our all in all. We sing all to Jesus. We sing, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. Yet so often, on a real-time basis, we do not trust Him and believe what He has said in His Word that he is able to take care of everything if we abide and trust in him. That we have been granted everything pertaining to life and God through a true relationship, the true knowledge of him. What did Jesus say in John 15? Turn to John 15. I would venture to say most of our sin when we want to do the right thing is related to a lack of faith, by the way a lack of faith in what God has truly said, a lack of trust in the person of Christ, and thus a lack of dependence in Him. We, we, we are so tempted, yet God is faithful. He's, he is gracious. He's kind. A true relationship with Him. He understands. He intercedes. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. He understands. Go to Him. John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean. He's saying you're saved. He's using this term in John. Clean means you've been cleansed. You're saved. You are already clean. He says, because of the word which I have spoken to you. Speaking to believers. Abide or remain. Rest in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless the branch abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I, this is the person of Jesus. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. 
where apart from me, you can do nothing. And there's a lot of nothing going on in the church these days. There's a lot of nothing being done. We need to abide in Christ and trust in him in a real relationship, not some phony, pious, hypocritical junk, but a real relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about Christ. It's about relying and trusting in him. And we have been given everything pertaining to life and God through the true knowledge of him, through the true knowledge of him. Stop going to the world for the things pertaining to life and godliness. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The world does not have what we need for life and godliness. And as we will see, even so-called Christians and Christians subtly go to the world's ways to resolve the things concerning life and godliness that God has said we have everything we need. Everything is found in Christ in a relationship where we are depending upon him, growing in his grace. That means we're resting more and more in him. He is functioning more and more as we recognize our weakness. His power has perfected our weakness. His grace is sufficient. And as we're going to see, that only comes the knowledge that we have of Christ only comes through the word of God. Back in our passage, First Peter chapter, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Hey, that's the desire of God. Seeing that, or as, just as, his divine power has granted, it's already happened and it affects you now, to us believers, everything pertaining to life in God is through the true knowledge of him. Through the true knowledge of him. And notice how the hymn is described here. You've got to ask, why is he described this way at this point? This way, who called us by his own glory and excellence. Who called us by his own glory and excellence. Glory and excellence, what does that have to do with this? Him. What does it have to do with this? Well, what is God's glory? We sing glory, glory. We sing to God be the glory. We talk about God's glory. What is God's glory? When you think of glory, what, do you, what, is it, what is it? Well, the term glory speaks of weight. speaks of weightiness. And it's very basic understanding from the Old Testament and then in the New Testament Greek word. As we're going to see, God's glory is the weight of his character and attributes. The tremendous realities of God that we do not or cannot ourselves have. What is God's glory? What did God say to Moses when, or what did God do with Moses when Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory? Turn to uh, Exodus 33. This is a great passage to help understand the glory of God. Not in total, but, but, but part of it. When you think of the glory of God, those, those characteristics that we can never have on our own, that we never will have our own on our own, but are completely His completely his now we can partake in it as we're going to see we can participate in it which is amazing exodus 33 verse 18 then moses says said i pray thee show me thy glory that's a pretty pretty straightforward prayer isn't it show me thy glory and he speaking of god said i will make 
all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I'm gracious and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for man cannot see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and and it will come about while my glory is passing by it that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Show me thy glory. I'll make all my goodness pass by. And the Lord is gracious, compassion, his grace, his compassion, the attributes of God that are weighty. He's glorious. He's glorious. It speaks of his character, his goodness, his graciousness, his compassion, the weight of these things which are eternally overwhelming. Overwhelming. And notice, not only has he called us, and we'll look about this term called in a minute, called us, but it's by his own glory, and notice the term excellence. Excellence. The word is arete in Greek. It speaks of that which is virtuous or excellent. It speaks of that which is worthy of praise. Worthy of praise. And it's in parallel with the idea of praise. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, and whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is any arete, any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. In Peter's first letter, he speaks of the fact that we were called out of darkness into his marvelous light, that we might proclaim his aretes, his excellencies. It's by God's glory and excellence, his tremendous character. Notice what our passage says that we've been called. Back to Second Peter, verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, his, his magnificent, praiseworthy character is the basis in which he called us, as we'll see, into a saving relationship. Why does he bring this in? Because it's by his excellencies and glories he calls us, and we're going to see it's by his excellencies and glories he gives us his magnificent promises. We're going to see it in a second. So we see that he called us, you know, we were called, and we see this idea of being called in Scripture. Notice what the Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But we should always, verse 13, give thanks to God, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because he has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. That's how we grow. It's a summary. And it was for this he called you through our gospel, that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We might gain the glory. We might become like him. We might become gracious. We might share in his attributes. We might share in the wonderful realities of this glorious God. We were called through the gospel. God called you into a relationship with himself through the gospel. We see it's through the gospel that we are called into a saving relationship. Galatians 1.6, we were called by the grace of Christ. We have a heavenly calling and a holy calling. Hebrews 3, 1 and 2 Timothy 1, 9. God who was faithful, who called us into fellowship with his son. 
our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord, 1 Corinthians 1.9. We were called into a relationship, fellowship with his son. Tremendous reality through the gospel. Peter spoke in his first letter of the Holy One who called us. And in chapter 2, verse 9, we were called out of darkness into his marvelous light that we would proclaim his excellencies. You see, brother and sister, we used to walk in darkness. We were slaves of sin. We were blinded. We did not know where we were going. We loved darkness, yet God, through his Son, illumined our hearts concerning our sin and his Son, the Savior, through the gospel, that we might see the reality of that sin and trust in the glorious Christ. He called us out of darkness into a relationship with him. And that was done by his glory and excellence. Those characteristics of God, his goodness, his compassion, his grace that are worthy of praise. That's how he saved us, by his character. He did the things he did because he is who he is. So why would Peter share this at this point? Why would he share this section here about his glory and excellence? Because there's something else connected to his tremendous character besides our salvation. It's the means in which we are sanctified also, the word of God. Look at our passage. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us into a relationship with him by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Remember, verses 2 through 4 are going straight through. It's one thought with all kinds of sub-thoughts going straight through. He says, for by these, or you could literally translate, through which. Through which. Through what? Through his precious, through, excuse me, through his glory and excellence, he has granted us something else. Through his character of graciousness and compassion, his character of goodness, he has given something else, by the way. Same word granted, something that is, is bestowed by, by someone who is generous. He has granted us, what has he granted? His precious and magnificent promises. It's a done deal. It's already been granted. It doesn't say he's granting them, that he's still granting them. It's a done deal. Grammatically, verse 4 is connected to verse 3, which is connected to verse 2. We have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness to the true knowledge of him. And as we're going to see, this is tremendous reality is in the context of his precious and magnificent promises. Verse 4, for by these, or through which, he has granted done deal, bestowed upon us, and it affects us now, us, the other believers, his precious and magnificent promises. Here he's clearly speaking of the word of God, but he is describing it in a way in which we ascribe the value that is due. We talk about God's word, but we don't talk about God's promises. What God says is faithful. What God says he will do a promise is something spoken that is going to be accomplished. He has bestowed them gratuitously upon us. He has an overwhelming gift upon us. It's a completed action. And we have been granted his precious and magnificent promises. The word promises again stresses the reality of God is going to do what he says. We can bank on it. 
God's word is true and God is faithful to his word. And notice how these promises are described. First, they are described as precious. They're costly. They're of great value. Peter uses this word to speak of the blood of Christ in 1 Peter 1.19, the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, right? And here he speaks of God's promises as precious, of, of, of immense value, immense value. Brother and sister, do you see God's promises as precious, his faithful word? Is it valuable in your sight? Or do you, do you seek it more than you seek gold and silver? Notice he also shares that his promises are not only precious, but magnificent. The term translated here is the Greek word magistos. We get the word megos. It just means large or great, but here it speaks of the largest or the greatest. They're the greatest. They're the greatest promises. They are magnificent. They're magnificent. The greatest and most precious promises he has granted to us. Do you realize what God has promised us in his word? It is tremendous. It is, as we will see, pertains to everything concerning life and godliness. Everything. Everything. The problem is faith, isn't it? Believing what God has said. Tremendous, magnificent promises. Very great. God's promises are precious and magnificent. Do you, do you see them this way? Turn to Proverbs chapter 2. Solomon is trying to share with his son the, the right heart attitude towards the word of God, and thus the God of the word. The right heart, heart attitude. You see, you get people who just have the word, it's like a formula. The scripture is a formula rather than a relationship with Christ where he works in our hearts. The Pharisees, they knew the word like you wouldn't believe, by the way. And Jesus said their table, that's where they put the word out on, had become their snare. They searched for the scriptures because they thought in them there was eternal life. But Jesus said, they point to me. It's about a relationship with Christ. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you will receive my sayings and treasure what my commandments were within you, in your heart. Make your ears attentive. Listen, right, to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, you lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover what? The knowledge of God. If you have a right view towards the word of God, you're going to grow in your relationship and knowledge of the Lord. And he says there, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth. It's his words from his mouth come from his mouth come knowledge and understanding he stores up sound wisdom for the upright and is a shield to those who walk in integrity guarding the paths of justice he preserves the way of his godly ones then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course everything you need for life and godliness right and he says for wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge knowledge in the context of the knowledge of god through his word right will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Brothers and sisters, we have been granted magnificent and precious promises. We have the faith delivered once for all to the saints. Peter, in his final letter here, acknowledges everything we need for our relationship with Christ is in the Word. The Apostle Paul made the same thing clear in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
All scriptures, written word of God is inspired by God. And this was his final letter also. He was going to die, go to the Lord, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You see, bad guys, later on we'll see in Second Peter, are going to come along and divert you from the sufficiency of Christ and his word. That's what they're going to do. But Christ is sufficient. His word is sufficient. We have the faith once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 1. And in Peter's last words, he says here, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. As we continue this marvelous passage, notice there's a purpose for these passages. There's a purpose for these promises. In the context, it's growing in the knowledge of Christ and his grace. But, but when we grow, we're going to be more like him. We're going to partake in his nature. Notice what it says. For by these, verse 4, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that, this is the purpose, by what? By them, in the context of a relationship with Christ, or not by themselves, by them, in order that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. What does he mean by that? That we become God? Absolutely not. The term translated partakers comes from the Greek word koinonia. And it speaks of sharing. We share in his divine nature. In consciousness, we share in his attributes of goodness and love and kindness and these things. We partake of who he is. We grow and are conformed into the image of Christ through the word of God. What did Peter say back in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2? 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn back there. Actually, go to 1 Peter 1, 23. He talks about the reality of how God saved us. He used this living word. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 23, For you have been born again, not of sea which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, all glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. God spoke it, and we were turned into new creations we were saved right therefore uh, verse chapter 2 verse 1 putting aside all malice and guile and hypocrisy and all envy and slander hey in christ you can set it aside you can choose to say no now and trust christ he says like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may what grow in respect to salvation become more and more like christ partake of his character it's through the word of God we partake of the character of God. We become more like him. Tremendous. He uses it to equip us for every good work, to grow us in respect to salvation. And this is all in the context of the knowledge of Christ and relying on him by his grace. Now as we finish, notice there is a, a qualifier here. He qualifies those who will partake. Notice what he says. In order that by them, that's the precious and magnificent promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Believer, if you're a true believer, you have already done deal. That's the the term. You have escaped the corruption. Think of uh, the term escape. It's a vivid word. You think of escaping. It's one being delivered from some type of peril or bondage, right? We have escaped 
through the blood of Christ. And notice he says, the corruption that is in the world by lust. The term corruption can speak of destruction or ruin. It's the corrupting influence of sin which brings death. The ones who can partake, if they rely in Christ, abiding in him through his word, grow, those are those who have already escaped the corruption that is in the world. And what is it by? It's by lust. The word just means desire. It's the corrupting desires of sin. We see that. Christ saved us. We have escaped. And we are the ones now who have escaped who can become more like Christ. Tremendous statement. Tremendous reality. He's saying that by these, these promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature. Tremendous passage. So then, a passage that is life-changing. I would say Christian life-changing. If you're willing to see yourself rightly, if you're willing to humble yourself before God, if you're willing to allow him to correct you by his word, if you're willing to trust him in a relationship where you're abiding in him and trusting in him, you're going to grow in his grace, in, in dependence on him. Dependence on him. Brothers and sisters, do you see God's word in the context of a real relationship with Christ as everything you need? Everything? Totally sufficient? I venture to say a lot of Christians don't believe that in practice. And I could give you a list of examples. But I think we know. I challenge you to think about areas in your life where you're not seeing God's word and thus Christ as totally sufficient. Where you're not relying on him. You're not growing in his grace and growing in the knowledge of him. God's desire for us is that his grace and thus peace be multiplied in the knowledge of him. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a tremendous, wonderful passage. You, through your Son, glorious and excellent, have given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness through a true relationship with your Son by his word, his, your precious and magnificent promises. Father, thank you that your desire is for us to grow and increase in grace and the peace that comes with it. I pray for anyone here who has not experienced your grace, who is living in their sin. May they understand you are a gracious God who, who reaches out to mankind with a free gift that is not deserved. That you sent your son to die for their sins, and he did die and he rose from the dead. If they're willing to acknowledge their sin and trust in your son Jesus, they will be saved by your grace in Christ. And Father, for those of us who know you, I thank you so much for this reminder. We need to be reminded over and over again what you have done in Christ. We need to be reminded of your desire and that everything is summed up in him. Father, may we see your son and your word as you have declared it to be. May we grow in the grace and knowledge of your son, Jesus. I pray this in his precious name.
Yeah.